Hello and welcome back to the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Will Davis Coleman and I am joined as ever by my co-host Patrick. How are you Pat? I'm good, how are you? Not too shabby thanks, uh, really looking forward to this one. It's, uh, it's going to be quite <laughs> yeah. the story. Uh, personally, this one I didn't know anything about and I don't know how many people would have heard of this, even people who look into this sort of thing. So it's a proper groundbreaking one Ooh. for me. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a hot scoop. Is that what it's called in news? Uh, yeah, or a hot take hot sometimes. Take, fresh scoop, something like that. I don't think you can get those in history. I mean, unless it's unless you've recovered something, which I don't think you have. No, 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 I amazing. haven't. I, I've heavily relied on a historian who will be mentioned later in this episode. Oh, so that, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely uh, not my own work, but I've, I've, I've just uh, repurposed it for the <laughs> airwaves. Let's put it that yeah. way. I really like the idea of one of us starting... Not looking forward to this episode. Uh, I didn't like the research. I didn't like the story, but I'm powering through. <laughs> to be quite honest, uh, I don't want to reveal uh, the city that we're going to be doing in a few weeks' time, but I've started the research on it, and it's so difficult. So I'm really, <laughs> actually, that might be the episode where I go, you know what? Yeah, I just yeah. wish we hadn't <laughs> chosen this bloody city. <laughs> well, we've picked um, some easy ones so far. I mean, New York, Alexandria... Um, yeah, we've, we've picked we've picked the biggins to do. I don't think we're we're pushing ourselves too far out, except for that one. And I think I know which one you're talking about. But we'll uh, yeah, get to that when we we'll get rem- to that. <laughs> I was going to say it remains unnamed, just in case you're listening from the city we're talking about. I don't want to insult you. <laughs> no, it's just fascinating history, uh, fascinating city. But you know, we're we're not we're not professional historians. We have lives. It's, there's a lot of work going into this, and it's it's difficult when it's it's a much more uh, a bit more unknown city. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so carrying on from last week, I will be doing an episode on the illustrious city of Alexandria. Uh, last week, we heard from Patrick telling us all about Roman Alexandria, or rather Christian Roman Alexandria. Christian from Roman, what? Byzantine Christian Roman. Roman. It's kind of, Byzantine yeah, okay. it, it's, on, it's on the edge of becoming Roman Empire and Byzantine Empire kind of era. And it's, yeah, Christ, Christian Roman is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. And that was in sort of about three three sixty BC. No, three sixty CE. CE. Right? There you go. Yeah. Right. Still, there you go. we st- we still pause every time we say CE. It's because I'm used to AD. going BC and AD, but I just feel like that's just not not in anymore. You know. No. <laughs> no. Especially as so many of the things we talk about don't include Christianity, so it's weird to say BC and AD. Yeah. Exactly. And it's more inclusive that way as well. Um, so yeah, let's dive into this one. So, uh, back to Alexandria, uh, where we left off last week, we had uh, the obvious, the terrible tsunami which hit Alexandria, uh, just when it was sort of becoming a Christian city, uh, having been a Roman pagan city, and before that, a Greek pagan city, and before that, a tiny little Egyptian forgotten town, which probably had its own gods. Um, yeah. But as uh, as Patrick said last week, though, um, it relied heavily on both the sea and being in the Nile Delta, because, of course, you need certain things to keep a, a city thriving, which <laughs> is A, commerce, and B, a surplus of food. And you can't really get those in a, in a place like Egypt unless you're close enough to fertile land uh, near the Nile, basically. Um, and that is true throughout its history, even all the way to today. Um, and where we'll be going today in my episode is the 18th century. 
Uh, and the thing about Alexandria after the period that Patrick was talking about is that it becomes quite, it really has a sort of, it gets, I feel a bit bad for the city. When I was doing my research for this, I felt like, <laughs> oh, it got really neglected for a while <laughs> because after the, uh, the collapse of the Roman Empire, you get the risings of the Muslim caliphates that take over uh, this part of Africa. In fact, most of North Africa becomes part of different caliphates that are uh, just rivals to one another, but all very much a Muslim in a Muslim uh, setting. But after that, after a while, you get the rise of the Mamluks. And the Mamluks were these um, very interesting people who were actually slaves. And so they didn't have their freedom but they were in. They were. They were also given great power. And the Mamluk, Mamluk Egypt, were the Mamluks were controlling Egypt at the time of the Crusades. So they were. They would have been fighting Templars and Hospitallers. So and they were. This was like a civilization, but they were all slaves. The top dogs were. It's a bit weird, but basically the Mamluks were the the top class, the ruling class. But they were right. slaves, and if they lost their slavehood then they would no longer be part of that top class. So, <laughs> what? I know. So, I know. who's this underneath is... slaves? Slaves Everyone. of slaves? Everyone's under, because they're like a warrior caste. So, they they're originally right. were slaves to, say, a power in Baghdad, let's say. But okay. they would rule Egypt on the behalf of the caliphate, the caliph in Baghdad. Ah. So, they were slaves to him, but he had given them full power over his land there weird so, that's yeah, such a really strange way of it going that egypt is suddenly ruled by a ruling class of slaves that's yeah. just weird i know it really is weird it is weird but they were fierce warriors and they i mean the the crusaders had no chance against yeah. them i mean they tried but eventually the last Bunch of, of the posh states. European, you know, third sons going, oh, yes, we'll head off to the Holy Land and steal some gold and come back. Hooray. <laughs> and then meet a warrior cast of slaves defending Egypt to the last man. Yeah, they're going to be fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, there was only one, there was actually a crusade called the Alexandrian Crusade, which targeted Alexandria in, oh. I think, 1365 um, from Rhodes. But that's for another time. I'm not going to tell you that story. Um, but after after all of that, um, came a real sort of time of of sort of consolidation and then just drift. It was sort of Alexandria was left behind by the rest of Egypt and the rest of the Mediterranean as well for a couple of reasons. What happens after the slave Mamluk class lose control of, of Egypt and Alexandria, the Ottoman Empire, which is based out of Istanbul, olden day Constantinople, um, they took over. Egypt. And the problem is, in the olden days, before they became part of the Ottoman Empire, they were the Alexandria was the main city or one of the main mm. cities in a kingdom, Egypt. But as yeah. soon as they became a sort of province to an empire, it loses a lot of its power. You know, mm. it's no longer relevant to the people, to the Ottomans. I mean, the Ottomans don't care that much. They're either in um, you know they're either um, in the not the Holy Land anymore. They're in the in the Levant, or they're right mm. up in 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 Istanbul. So they they aren't looking at, at Egypt as anything other than a subsidiary of where they're actually from. 
So they obviously had some other, because something we talked about in the last episode was how Rome, because it's essentially what happened to Alexandria earlier in its history, where it was ruled by the Ptolemies and then was overtaken by this foreign empire, in this case, the Roman Empire. But the Romans really saw it as their, you know, a unique resource to pull in all this grain. I guess the Ottomans had alternate sources. They didn't see Alexandria as this beacon of you know this hugely important strategic location to power their empire whereas rome did you know what i've just realized why it's why? a matter of geography well so yeah, it always the roman is, no 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 no. but really the romans right the roman hub is rome obviously mm. so alexandria is a very important port to cross to rome right but the yeah. ottomans are much more land-centric based looking east so they have mm. lands all the way through the levant which is modern day, you know, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. So all of that is part of it. So they would go by, there's no need for them to worry about a port. They can just take it by land. Yeah, absolutely. So the, whereas you know whereas I mean? the Roman Empire is just essentially a ring all around the Mediterranean Sea, really. Like they are just, they are the Mediterranean Empire. Whereas the yeah. Ottomans, Alexandria is this kind of like very westward outpost that doesn't really matter to most of them because it's so far from the beating heart of its empire that it doesn't really care about it i suppose they could have went well we probably get some grain from it but it's a long way to go to trek it across most of our empire whereas the romans were like this can because it's right on the mediterranean we can send it to almost every corner of our empire by sea wow that's exactly. so interesting yeah yeah um so in so after the ottomans take over there's about i think about 600 years where they're sort of a province if you like and that means that they don't have any sort of power. And so they start to dwindle in their significance. Mm. And by the time of our story, which is taking place in the 18th century, the uh, very important canal that was, um, which connected Alexandria to the River Nile had been allowed to silt up. So they couldn't wow. actually... That very important thing... That very important connection to, as we said last week, the lifeblood of all of Egypt was allowed to silt up. So the Ottomans really didn't give a shit that they could. When you say uh, allowed, probably as in like they knew it was being silted up and did nothing about it. They didn't want it to happen, but they just didn't. There's no point. Like we don't bother. Like, they were lazy. Can't. They didn't need yeah, it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a priority. They really. Wow. That's kind of what comes across with it. Um, and because of this, there's also a lot. But, because of that, it means that lots of fresh water couldn't be supplied to the city. So you get Oof. it's not a it's not a pretty sight, unfortunately. So you you get a lot of uh, plagues and famines. And actually, um, in the century that we're going to be talking about, between 1701 and 1844, Alexandria experienced 59 59 epidemics, oh which is an God. average of two out of every five years, Jesus. with the worst ones occurring in 1701, 1736, 1759, 1785, and 1791. Um, oh, and my this, God. So think about it. You've got the combination of disease, because you can't mm -hmm. think, and you also have a lack of trade coming in because you can't get it up the silted canal anymore. So no and Exactly, but also there's no fresh water. So you're getting brackish water, which leads to further disease. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's usually the biggest causes, of, especially of ancient plagues and famines and everything, is lack of fresh water. I mean, it is, it is quite literally a lifeblood to a city. And if they can't get that, 
Wow. And just because it's neglect, that's so sad. This kind of really ancient and glorious city that in the time I was looking at it and the time, you know, of the of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar is this, you know, huge beacon of civilization to now just kind of turn to the wayside from a... It's so interesting that it's because... Not because of its location, but because of its location compared to the empire it's part of. When it yeah. was part of the Roman Empire, it was so important. But the Ottoman Empire is on a different, is in a whole different sphere of influence and doesn't give a shit about Alexandria. And so, because it is just, uh, it is just a tool of the Ottoman Empire, it is, it is at its mercy. And therefore, if Ottoman Empire doesn't care, it's screwed over. That's so sad. It is. And um, I think last week you mentioned that a number, I think it was in 30 BCE, um, I caught myself there, uh, (laughs) there were 300,000 people in, if you believe the sources, obviously you have to be very careful with ancient sources, this sort of thing, Um, but there were 300,000 Alexandrians. By the time of our story, by one estimate, it was now reduced to three or 4,000 people. So it is 1% of the size population wise that it was at its height god that is i mean that's not a city anymore oh that must have been a oh imagine being there this huge because the buildings would still be i mean you might have ancient roman and greek and egyptian buildings that would just be a ghost town yeah and actually it's funny you should say that so um i've looked at some old maps and basically what happens is they uh after a while they realize that they are open to attack because there's no longer enough people to man the walls of the ancient Greek Roman city. So what happens is, if you look at Alexandria on a map, um, the bit where Alexander built the um, the sort of causeway that goes out to the island of Pharos, yeah. they then put new walls in either end of that narrow isthmus and they make a new city there. It's the sort of new Alexandria in the 18th or maybe the 17th century because they couldn't man the whole of the Greek city. So they just left it and they moved the population a little further north, nearer to the harbour, which is the lifeline, even though everything was going tits up, you could still rely on the harbour. So they were just basically huddled in so that they could protect the perimeter. So, you know, it's a a city in very much in decline. That's such an interesting way. That's it's so unusual to see because so many, so often in modern cities, you'll see, oh, any city, you know, you'll get to a point, you'll you'll walk past a a gate which is somehow in the middle of the city, and it's it's indicating, you know, this is the size of the city when it was a much smaller settlement. But this is the reverse. They've gone back into themselves and shrunk, and they're just now surrounded by this, presumably kind of wasteland of old ruined buildings that aren't ruins because they're ancient civilizations, but because no one's living there. They're just kind of barren well, and That's the thing. Awful. Uh, uh, there were apparently, at the time of our story, about 80 houses within the old city that were inhabited. So there was some activity there, but really nothing. When you think about it, 80 households, that's what? Maybe uh, 200 people. I'm imagining it would also be uh, kind of a shadier part of town. It would be, you know, a bit more lawless. If it's outside now, what is now the kind of protected part of the city, it would perhaps be lawless. There would be a lot of crime. There'd be, you know, kind of shadier people moving around out there using all these buildings that aren't owned by anyone for yeah. illicit activities. It would have been that's smaller. how I'm imagining it, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It really would. So, um, so that's kind of what's happened since 
Patrick's episode last week. So it's really fallen to its knees. But luckily, the lifeline, the lifeblood of the city is Alexandria. And actually, its its inhabitants are still predominantly Greek, um, or not quite Greek, Greek-Egyptian, but they're not, mm. they haven't, that original population is the original ones. It hasn't mm. been shifted out and replaced by just Egyptians. That actually does happen um, in the modern era, in the 20th yeah. century, where Abdul Nasser basically gets every, he was the dictator who ruled Egypt, uh, he gets all the Europeans to sell up and leave. So that's when you get the mass exodus from Alexandria uh, of them. But it, they survive all the way through to then. So that's quite wow, interesting. That's so interesting that we have, yeah, that's it, the, the, you know, um, that's the time span between Alexander the Great kicking out all the Egyptians from the original town that was there <laughs> and filling yeah. it up with a bunch of Greeks and Macedonians. And then all the way, thousands of years later, same thing happens. Big guy, big man comes in power and kicks out all the people and says, now this is now an Egyptian town again. Yeah, that's, that's exactly 2,000 years later, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, there is one last thing I'll say about this part of the story. So uh, whilst it is very much on its knees, Alexandria has a very small European contingent of living. I'm talking sort of Northern European. I'm not talking Mediterranean. So you, you right. have little districts popping up in the 1700s, like early 1710s, 1720s, that sort of time, um, from their sort of like embassies, their consulates from France and Spain. There's a, actually a whole Jewish uh, consulate area. Oh, wow. And, and the Brits are there as well, but not of in course. force. And the predominant um, uh, Europeans who are there in numbers are the French. So the French are... This isn't quite... We're not at the point where we can call this colonialism. We're not at the mad dash for Africa yet. No, no, that's uh, in the 19th century. So our story is taking place uh, in 1767. So this is even before um, the New York episode that uh, Patrick did uh, a week ago. So this is from... This is still a very early, early sort of European intervention in other parts of the world. Yeah, the, the empire building hadn't quite begun quite yet. Which no. is interesting because actually we so a lot of the British Empire thing is is thought of as part of you know America's uh, fight for independence, but actually most of Europe's real empire building doesn't get going until the nineteenth century. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Um. So, but the people who are there are um merchants and sort of political envoys who send messages back to the Europe back to Europe by any means necessary for intelligence. Because the thing is, um, although Alexandria is so small, it is still part of the uh, system by which you'd get spices from India um, coming into the Mediterranean and, you know, different silks. Like, uh, there was a small trade of Egyptian cotton coming through. So there, oh, okay. there are still things coming through. Pepper was another big export for Alexandria at the time. So how do you get... People, how do you get from sort of the local grain farmers or the local pepper farmers all the way back to Paris? How did, what's the middle? You need a middleman, right? You don't, you can't just sort of, you can't just rely on sort of Uber or, you know, you can't yeah. like <laughs> click and collect for this stuff. Sure. Um, and the people in the mix for that were people called dragoman or dragomen. And that is a, a bit of a weird word, but basically what it is, is they're these sort of interloping sort of middlemen who spoke lots of different languages. They were very talented and they'd be part of like a diplomatic service 
and they would deal on the ground with everyone. So they were they were sort of your local go-to fixer, but they were European, if you sort right. of mean. Okay. And okay. so w- whenever the French would send out a consul to the consulate in Alexandria, he would be there, and yes, he'd be like the head dog, but without him, sorry, without his dragoman, he'd be completely screwed because he didn't uh... have any relationships with these people. He couldn't speak any of the languages. That's the other thing. They only spoke French, so they needed yeah. these guys on the ground who could do... It's kind of like a guide, with. almost. A kind of, you know... A, a, yeah, like you're saying, greasing the wheels to these relationships because they know everything about the, the world that these people are coming into. Exactly. Now, one of these men is going to be the man who will be taking us round this part of Alexandria in this time period. So cool. let's get on with the walkthrough. So let me introduce you to the man in question. This man is called Etienne Roboloy, and he is one of these said dragomen. And he is not dressed as a textbook colonial European stereotype. Uh, he's not, you, the French consulate would be wearing tight trousers, a starch shirt, and like a blazer of the European yeah. colonial offices in <laughs> other places. Yeah. But this guy is not that, not at all. Instead, Roboloy is wearing a kaftan, which is like a sort of big silk robe. Yeah, yeah. Made from locally sourced cotton and dyed a dark indigo blue, a nod to his allegiance to France. And across his chest, he wears a silk sash of deepest orange, which was a gift from a friendly Ottoman merchant from from Istanbul. And on his head, instead of wearing the wide-brimmed hat of the Europeans, Roboloy is wearing a white turban. So he's properly ingratiated in their society. He's, yeah, he's, um, he has he has he has become among the people, as it were. Well, this is it exactly. The reason for his chosen uniform is simple. He works almost entirely with non-white, non-Christian merchants and agents who don't speak a word of French or any other European language. So he has to fit in. And these men are far from easily trusting of of white men in starch suits and pith helmets. Uh, but a turbaned, kaftan-wearing, Turkish-speaking, tanned version may well be more agreeable to them when they're coming to doing deals. So it is about assimilating into the culture in order to get things done. Yeah, yeah, I like it. That's a, that's that. I mean, that's a huge part about I think business arrangements nowadays, isn't it? It's really understanding the culture you're dealing with, and so not what European interests would be thinking at that time. I mean, if you think about no. all the, like, the British colonialists, you know. They don't give a shit about what, you know, they think, you know, all these strange natives with their strange outfits, you know, oh, we need to put them in shirts and collars and, and ties to, to be able to deal with them. Whereas this guy knows how things work, knows that when, in you, when you're in someone else's country, it does you huge amount of good to ingratiate them in their customs and their clothes. And I mean, clothing is such a huge part of communication. And, you know, you can... It is. It's so, you just stick out so obviously if you're not in the correct clothing and that requires uh, someone who's from the place, who's from, who knows the culture well. Exactly. So that's really interesting. And he would be essentially completely European, like white. Well, um, yes. French, uh, well, France born maybe, or tanned, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's French, he's, he's a French uh, citizen because he works for the okay. French consulate. So you can't do that unless you're French. It's oh, the same with all okay. the other Europeans at this time. 
Um, so Rob Roy was not a Muslim, though, so nor had he turned Turk, in air quotes, as some commentators at the time referred to men who did, uh, who converted. Uh, he also, though, oh, see. was... But he wasn't planning on leaving Alexandria and returning to France, ever. His world is the city, and there is wow. no one who quite knows it like he does. Even some locals don't know it as well as he does. He has been working over if in Alexandria for over 30 years. Mm. The first uh, recorded that we have of him it was in 1735. Sorry, 1731. That's how long he's been there. And this, this is taking place in 1767. So this is a... He's been there for a very long time. So it's this very and, early version of, you know, Europeans in these foreign exotic places to do deals and to help uh, expedite. I've got a very... Um, I've recently watched Casablanca for the first time. And oh, that kind yeah. of like feeling of, you know, Europeans in this other country, loads of them have no idea what's going on, don't they? but then you have these figures, these very suave, clever men who are able to ingratiate themselves into the society and able to really, you know, fit in and get a lot out of living there. Um, that's yeah. so interesting. And what a, I mean, what a life in such a very, that's kind of a modern idea, really. I mean, it's very... Throughout most it's, of history, you don't get these people who are very much from somewhere very far away living somewhere else. You might get immigrants who eventually ingratiate, but this guy is French-born but living in half the world away. Yeah, and he wouldn't return home necessarily. That's the thing. So let's let Roboloy take us on a walk around this Perfect. Alexandria. So Roboloy uh, lives in the French compound, and the French compound, or the district, if you like that, quarter system, uh, was called... Le Nation, which literally means the country <laughs> in French, um, which was Inventive. in the heart of yeah, which is in the heart of the new city I was talking about. So it's no longer in the the Alexandrian city, which is there, but it's just not inhabited. It's much nearer to the port. It's literally on the harbour, pretty much right. where all the others are. And he lives alongside his fellow consular workers, but also a whole range of other French citizens who just sort of waifs and strays who sort of wash in to Alexandria, uh, as I'm sure <laughs> yeah. across across the world. Um, uh, there's a list that um, I, I will quote my source later, but um, from the list of people who were living there when he was there, it included domestic servants, carpenters, an innkeeper, and even a wig maker was in the city. <laughs> like, all living wow. in the Nation. Yeah. Well, you know, when you, move, when you move to somewhere and you're French, you need to make sure you've got your wig guy. I mean, you know, you need <laughs> yeah. to, what, what are you going to do when, you, when you're out and about? Who, although, who wears a wig Well, I guess Egypt? the French consul does. It must just be for him. Yeah. You know. Maybe you need the wig guy so while he's there, he can figure out a way to make wigs that are a bit more breathable so that you don't have to wear a bloody wig <laughs> in 40 degree heat. And have to put up with. I mean, you know, I'm fairly sure turbans are designed in a way to kind of keep you cool in a certain way. Wigs yeah. won't be. They're there no. just to make you look like a posh twat. So they need it to be made out of some lighter material, that maybe with some vents and stuff to keep some cool <laughs> air moving through it. Yeah, some airy wigs. I'm sure that'll take off. Um, yeah. But yeah, so it, but just so you know, this wasn't like a mi simply like a mini Parisian commune. It, mm. Most of the Frenchmen who were living there, and the majority of them are these dragomen, and uh, Roboloy was the chief dragoman in Alexandria. But they were all married to non-French citizens, most of them. Um, oh. So some were married into the local Egyptian community, uh, whilst others had married the daughters of merchants from across the Mediterranean. 
Roboloi himself had married the daughter of a Genoese merchant named Maria. So oh. he's he's having a life with his Italian Genoese wife in Alexandria, hmm. sort of forgotten port of the Ottoman Empire, with with wow. its sort of faded glory. Yeah. yeah. So he leaves La Nation and he walks down towards the harbour, which obviously put Alexandria on the map. And thank God, even though they're in the worst of times, is still a harbour which is bringing in some sort of wealth. Um, yeah. The reason for that is it's one of the only deep water harbours for hundreds of miles east or west on this coastline. So mm. it's really one of the only places they can dock in. Um, thank you, so, Alexander the Great. Yeah, exactly. So as he looks out uh, at the eastern harbour built by Alexander the Great, he can see the ancient city to the south of him and the remains of the Pharos lighthouse, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is now just a low patch of rubble uh, because it was destroyed by another earthquake, not the one from last from last episode. Yeah, I think there's a few earthquakes that shake it pretty badly. Um, actual yeah. earthquakes, you know, near uh, Alexandria as opposed to a far away one that just causes a wave to come in. Yeah. Um, uh, on the other side of the harbour, though, probably where the, the tsunami hit the hardest, is an obelisk that's been moved there in the inter intervening years between our two episodes, uh, which is known as Cleopatra's Needle. Yeah. It wasn't actually anything to do with Cleopatra, it turns out it's, it's another pharaoh. Um, but that, that, uh, there were actually two obelisks there, but they weren't there originally, they were moved there. Um, and eventually they would then be shipped off, one to America and the other one to London, and you can go and see it. It's literally by the Thames. It's literally right there, and it used That's to look out That's one of Cleopatra's... Over. Is it? Yeah, because they're, they're both called Cleopatra's Needles, aren't they? Yeah, but then neither of them have anything to do with Cleopatra. No, no. <laughs> um, wow, that is so that is so weird. Yeah, so if you're ever walking down the Thames, if you're a Londoner, um, you'll see an obelisk, an Egyptian obelisk, and that was once looking over the Alexandrian Harbour. God, so, yeah. aren't we great stealing all these things and putting them in London? <laughs> yeah. Well, I had to get one colonial sort of moment dig in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's important but, to keep up this uh, our anti-British colonial uh, point of view on this podcast. Yeah. So most of the harbour shipping would have been um, teeming with uh, merchant ships which were heading to other parts of the Ottoman Empire. So there was a, a real thing about um, the Ottomans not wanting them to trade with Christians. They, they wanted to keep it within the Ottoman Empire because they were worried about mm. losing money to the West, basically. Mm. Not that that's how money works, but that's kind of how they thought it did. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, he was intending to meet uh, an, a colleague of his, a Jewish merchant, to discuss a shipment of cotton to the Ottoman Greek city of Salonika, which is Thessalonica from the ancient, ancient Greek world. Um, and he, as he's passing a group of Ottoman soldiers, they are dragging away two screaming beggars. And he probably thought, oh, you know, clearing them off the streets. But, you know, he was no fan of the Ottoman soldiers. He absolutely mm. wasn't. Um, as he looks up, he sees his mate, uh, the Jewish merchant, waving at him from some distance away. Um, and the way he's waving, Rob Roy starts to feel uncomfortable. Suddenly, there is a hand on his shoulder, and it belongs Ooh. to a well-dressed Ottoman man who knows Robbley by name. This Ooh. is very unnerving for Robbley because he doesn't recognize yeah. the man. But it's not that surprising because he's quite well known as the chief dragoman in the city. So if you want to talk to the Europeans, you go through him. So if this man is a, you know, he might not be a threat necessarily. Um, the, the man begins by telling him of a several mutual acquaintances that they have 
in Istanbul. Or it was actually known as Constantinople back then, but same city. Um, yeah. As he guides him away down the harbour, away from his friend. And then three large Ottoman soldiers grab Roboloy, beat him to a pulp, and drag his body onto the Reala ship waiting on the pier. And the Reala is run uh, is a ship which is sort of like a prison ship. So suddenly, this man who has been very powerful is now in the in the bilge of a slave-run ship. Wow! And that's the end of the walkthrough and yeah, the well, beginning he... of my segment. <laughs> yeah, he literally well, he can't really walking. keep he keep well, he can't keep walking through the city anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, God, that's yeah. quite scary. I guess you know you always. Unless you're representing the the true powerhouse of a city, you're you know you're never in true safe hands. You know you no. can kind of imagine at any time. You know in in my time, unless you're you know uh, an agent of Rome, you could still be just thrown into a ship. You know, no matter how high you get up on your station, if you're not part of the in crowd, the ruling class, you could be thrown aside. Which is interesting yeah. in this case. It's the Europeans who are at the mercy of the Eastern Ottoman Empire. But I guess at this time, this is their turf. This is their land. Absolutely. They, Although... They, they ain't fucking about. They, they are the occupation force. The majority of the people they were occupying were actually, as I say, Greek or or a sort of merchant class of from all oh, over okay. Europe. So it's quite interesting uh, that way around. So the capture of Roboloy happened on the 20th of July, 1767. And straight away afterwards, there it sends... Alexandria into bloody chaos, all starting at 1 a.m. in the morning of that day, or the next day, so I guess the 21st, right. um, because uh, an officer, the officer who had seized him, who was actually an Ottoman vice admiral, no less, so a really high Holy up shit. figure, yeah. crashed, yeah, so he crashes into La Nation, which is the French compound, and demands, he literally is like banging on the consul, the French consul's door, and going demanding bail for him, so he's just trying to make it. It looks like he's trying to make a mm. quick buck. You know, he's like, "Oh, I've got one of your your guys. You want him back? Mm. Pay me." Um, wow. And so we actually have the writings from the French consul himself from his diary that tells us what happens next. Awesome. Yeah. So it starts here. All that I have been able to learn up till now is that enemies that Roboloy has in Constantinople gave the Grand Vizier, who runs the country. Uh, to understand that this dragoman is not French, but Armenian, and that he never paid the tax. He loaded French boats with all kinds of products and under the pretext of sending them to Smyrna and Salonika, which are under Ottoman rule, he sent them to Christendom. So that's the charge. Right. So you're not supposed to be selling to Christians, and this guy supposedly... The charges that he is selling to Christians, and is the, so the a, charge is he's also Armenian and he's not right. French. So it's twofold. It's the fact that he's actually an Ottoman. He's under the. He's an Ottoman subject. This is what they yeah. claim, and therefore he is subject to tax. And remember, he's been out there for thirty years. So there's thirty. There's back taxes of thirty years, possibly. I see. Um, so he'd been paying taxes to the French, and or hadn't the, been paying taxes at all. So the French oh, didn't require him to right. pay taxes. Um, so and so, but. And he's meant to, as I said earlier, send the the French boats towards Smyrna and Salonika, which are in sort of Ottoman-held Greece. And yet he's been told, they're saying that he hasn't been doing that and he's been sending them to Christendom, Mm. which is basically anywhere in Western Europe. 
Um, so yeah, so this is a man who is always known to be French and, you know, the, it's a very integral part of the setup down in Alexandria for the French. And suddenly, not only has he lost his French identity, he's in the bowels of a ship and he uh, he's in a really sticky position because the Grand mm. Vizier, if the Grand Vizier is involved, this is bad, bad news because uh, but in, in the Ottoman Empire, you have the Sultan, who is sort of like the king, it's the dynasty. And right yeah. underneath him, his advisor is called the Grand Vizier. And quite often, the Grand Vizier was like more powerful than the monarch, than the Sultan. Yes, the the Sultan was the the figurehead, kind of like a lot of uh, monarchs around the world. It's almost like the the Japanese emperor and then the shogun. Yes, although yeah. at times you had very powerful sultans, uh, mm. and other times you had very powerful Grand Viziers. But you always had one ruling the empire. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is not good because also to make it worse, the reason why uh, the French consul writes all that I have been able to learn up to now is because he can't speak any of the languages. Oh fuck! <laughs> because his chief dragoman would have done all the translations as well. Oh, I see. Wow. So he's really in a really awful position. He can't do fuck all to do to help the guy out because he needs to speak. Oh my god! I know. I mean, and to make matters learn even the language, worse, man. What yeah. are you doing over there? Well, to make matters even worse, they don't. Um, there were like a hundred deals that he was involved in for like legitimate deals that required his personal attention. And of course, he's now not active. Rob Alloy's in, in custody. So all of wow. that all of that commerce has just gone up the, up the spout. So all the people he's wow. smooth-talked or greased the wheels with a bribe here or there, no, all, de- all bets are off. So suddenly, He's still Alexandria... essential to the flow of, of commerce there. And as soon as he's out of the game for even a few hours, it starts messing things up. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, suddenly you've paralysed the French consul, you've paralysed the commercial hub of Alexandria Mm. for a a massive part, and there's nothing that anyone can do because it's the middle of the night and there's not much that can be done. Um, See, that's that's proof that you're doing a job well, or maybe not. It's that discussion of if you leave if you if you leave your job for a few days, do things fall apart while you're not there? Which means you're really important, but then maybe you didn't set things up well, or things stayed really well, which means maybe you're not important, or you just did a good job of setting things up. Whereas this guy's gone heavy the <laughs> the first way and gone, yeah, yeah, you need me. If if I'm not, if I'm out of the game, or you know, I'm kidnapped, then things are going to start falling apart. Which I suppose is yeah. a good thing because it means that the French are going to really need to get him back and will do everything they can. Well, exactly right. Um, first of all, the only reason that the French consul knows this has happened, except for the rude awakening he had, was yeah. that um, local Egyptians who knew the dragoman, they knew um, Roboloy, they reported, they ran back to the French La Nation and told them that the Turks were treating him worse than a slave. So they basically wow. beaten him up and they, you know, they were really horrible to him because hmm. in... Um, in the Ottoman sense of things, the Armenians are a lower, they're not even classed as human. Well, they are classed as human, but they are treated very inhumanely yeah. um, by the Ottoman overlords. So as soon as they they pen him, it's a bit like if you're in Nazi Germany, not quite maybe as bad, and they found out that there was a secret Jewish man living there. That What would the mm. Nazis do to that Jew? It's the same kind yeah. of thing. What would the uh, Ottomans do to this, this Armenian if he is Armenian? Um, yeah. Or so if anyway, you were in you know ancient Egypt, and they and pointed out someone was Jewish, or if you were, I, to be honest, in a lot of the world, and they pointed out someone was Jewish, unfortunately. Yeah, true. 
Um, so that, that's very much alive and well in this part of the story. So what does the consul do? He can't, he's paralyzed because he doesn't have his translator, but eventually he gets a word out to the French ambassador to Constantinople uh, to protest on behalf of this man. So right. he goes to, he protests to the, uh, th- there's two things that happen. Um, the first thing that happens is the ambassador to Constantinople, the French ambassador goes to the grand vizier and starts shouting and then the chief French dragoman in all of um, Cairo, which is where the Ottomans are governing um, in, um, Egypt from, he goes to the Ottoman governor and goes, what the hell are you doing? This is wow. a Frenchman. You can't so this is do a, this. This, is, this. This is a bigger deal, dragoman. Like he's the he's one of the best. He's one of the tops. And, and yeah. Is there, they're not like a group. It's a type of person. So he doesn't feel, I mean, he wants to help him out, but it's not like he's his... Brother in arms, you know, always never leave a dragoman behind or anything like that. Well, I don't know. I think there was, you'd probably feel you're, you're attacking um, the trade because if, if this dragoman gets lynched, what happens mm. to all of them? It sets a precedent, doesn't it? So they it's their way of life. Um, so, yeah, a bit early for that. Um, yeah. But the, uh, so because of all this, it causes a massive international incident because. Suddenly, the Ottomans and the French, who are very, very powerful in this time, probably the Ottomans mm. more so than the French, but you do not want these two not talking because they, they you know, you need this to, you need mm. trade to be running and, and, you know, political political machinations. It's all very important, all because of this one thing happening in Alexandria. Um, so well, that's always the case, isn't it? You know, huge international incidents always spring around these relatively minor cases. But if it's between two nations, neither nation wants to seem to look weak. And they don't want to back down, and it will just keep, you know, jumping up the the pay scales, uh, and you know the, the the different higher up people until you've got top man on either side facing off for this relatively minor issue, but yeah. it's it's seen on a world scale. Now, um, we'll we'll leave Robbly rotting in the ship for a moment because I just want to let you know a couple of cool things about Robbly because Robbly okay. is quite the character because. He is. You don't make very much money as a dragon man. Like you make some money, but it's not like you're not going to get rich off it. Yeah. So they get uh, a little bit of the tax paid on goods coming into the uh, into Alexandria. They get a little bit of a cut on the side, uh, just to keep them sweet. So he's getting mm. a bit more money from there, and then he also he does dabble in a bit of private trade as well, which he's kind of not meant to do, but everyone kind of does it, sort of thing. Yeah. So. Um, uh, in this article that I found, we know for a fact that he sent um, all sorts of... Um, in fact, no, what did he do? He he set off a shipment of tobacco to go from Salonica in Greece to Genoa in in Italy from Alexandria. Just think of the logistics involved in that in the 1760s or maybe even earlier. Yeah. He is, he is conducting a trade of a tobacco shipment leaving Salonica and going to Genoa. So from Greece to Italy, and he's doing the whole thing from Alexandria. I mean, so presumably through with the help of his wife and his wife's family, because she's, Pres- she's from Genoa, yeah. Yeah, she is. Wow. Um, but apparently also with the help of some Jewish traders in Greece that he's worked with for years. Because his main job was exporting rice and coffee to Salonica and Smyrna, which are both in that part of the world. So he's sort of dabbles in sort of private trade and he's clearly well known across the Mediterranean. But there's one other thing which he does which is makes him stand out from anyone else. And that is 
well, firstly, it comes from the fact that he is very close with the Bedouin tribes, which are sort of the local tribes outside of Alexandria. And whenever yeah. they come in with their trade, they go straight to Robbery. They trust him. He's been around so long that they go straight to him. So he's got like an he's, intelli- the, he's the man to know. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got an intelligence network from this Ooh, thing. That's yeah. cool. So he'll hear when the best trades are coming in and what to sort of bet on or not necessarily bet mm. on. But, you know, he hears so he can get things for clients abroad that most people don't have a line on. And this leads him to being taken to see the catacombs in the ancient city of Alexandria. Wow. So the and it's old... like these Bedouins know these secret passageways beneath the city, and he's yeah. he's he's let within the, the circle of trust. Wow. Exactly. So... So, this guy's awesome. I know. So but the thing is, so these, uh, Alexandria today, the, the famous uh, catacombs are called the Kom Ash-Shakufa catacombs, and they mm. were only discovered properly in 1900 when a donkey fell down a hole into them accidentally, and then it was like... <laughs> Got to save the donkey. Holy shit, what have we just found down here? There's a bunch of skulls around here. What the fuck is this? (laughs) But more than that, treasures. I mean, I'm talking stuff from from its earliest foundations all the way through to the whole Roman period. There's all sorts down in the catacombs. Um, Mm. But the locals have known about it as as they do forever. But it wasn't on an international stage, so it wasn't that well known. But Mm. Robberly had seen, he managed to get down there and... You're not going to believe this. He is mentioned in a letter sent by the French consul, so his mate, um, mm. to the king of France. This is Louis XVI. So right. the last king of France, if you know your French history, he got his head chopped off. Um, who He says that, um, that Roboloy has several statues that he thinks he'd be interested in, which he found in the catacombs. Wow. And, yeah. So here was an obscure functionary in the second tier French consulate making propositions to the king himself. I think it's just so cool. From ab- you know? and and from knowledge of ancient Alexandrian catacombs, he learnt from his secret network of Bedouin uh, tradesmen. I mean, this is there's just so many people. This is the most multicultural I think thing had ever happened at this time. I mean, there's just everyone moving around here. Exactly. And it is such a melting pot. Alexandria is so like that, you know. Um, Mm. But what I find amazing is that this tiny sort of insignificant guy in a backwater city of of the Ottoman Empire has a connection to Louis XVI. Yeah. It's just a very cool connection to have. Very cool. Anyway. Not going to be helpful for very long, given what happens to Louis XVI, but still, you know. Well, in 1767, you know, Louis XVI, I actually don't know if he's actually on the throne yet. He pro- I'm pretty sure he is. Um, he's a young he's a young king, so he's probably not dealing with what's happening in, in the 20 years' time where he gets his head lopped off. True, true, true. Um, it's probably the good times at this point. Um, but anyway, so... <laughs> good time to know uh, a king. Yeah. Um, so basically, what is the, the crux of the case with Roboloy is, was he French or was he Armenian? Because that's the thing. And what's really interesting is that, uh, you know, if he was indeed French, then this was really... I, I can't tell you how important this actually is. If he is French, then this have, could have caused an all-out war between France and the Ottomans. Right. They had gone to war with Algeria three years before this because the Algerian governor of Algiers, which is the city, had mm. struck the French consul with a fly whisk. Wow, so the and French that, are pretty bloody prickly about things. Yeah, literally. He got hit in the face with a fly whisk and it was all out war with Algeria. 
So oh my God, if this calm it down, yeah. France. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can. I'm very worried about this story now because, although I'm fairly sure I know my history, and then they don't go into all-out war with the Ottoman Empire just before <laughs> uh, the French Revolution. I think I would have heard about that. So, well, but... th- this is the thing. So, there's the big, the big hole in Rob Roy's case is that there are over 20 letters that survive which protest his innocence from all quarters, from the French ambassador in Constantinople to this chief dragoman down in Cairo to his mm. own consul who he works for. But not once, not once does anybody say where Robbery was born. Wow. So it could have been as easy as saying, I know he's from Normandy. He's from this little mm. village, like something so yeah. you know, but they never do that. And of course, the big problem is he's been there for 30 years. Name another European who's been in there for that long. Yeah. So there's he's just not no going one. Home. There's no yeah. one who can corroborate his his story, really, because no. he's just so entrenched. And because he is so entrenched and sort of air quotes turned Turk, his French acolyte, he hasn't got the right French accolades. He, if he looked mm. more French, he probably wouldn't have had this problem. But because he dresses yeah. in the in the in the garb of, of an Ottoman, that actually doesn't play well in this situation. Um, things get so all of those letters come to nothing. N- the, the the Ottomans think they have their man. He's been betrayed by someone in Constantinople who doesn't like him. And that's right. what the problem is. And okay. things get worse because as all this is going on, the bloody ship only goes and leaves. So the shit. The, he's now chained to a say a slave uh, slave ship. So he is rowing. It's a galley. So oh, he's, wow. He's properly being kept as a slave, yeah. as his imprisonment. And he is on that ship, and it sets sail for Syria, and then on to Constantinople itself. Shit. And the trip takes five months and two days. So he's on that ship in the worst possible, oh, you know, he's God. not getting any food or like the worst water. Mm. And he sp- spends five months and two days on this ship, which is a really long time, mm. a really long time. Um and then he arrives in Constantinople and it only gets worse because he's thrown into the Sultan's slave prison, which is even worse than normal prison, apparently. Um, <laughs> and yeah. uh, on the 15th of April, 1768, so he's caught on, uh, in July 67. So in April 68, the next year, uh, and this is written, uh, this, is, this is from a, a letter. Uh, he was broken by suffering and worry and he dies amongst these slaves. Oh, my God. Oh, that's yeah. awful. I know. And this death led to the biggest international diplomatic catastrophe between France and the Ottomans for a whole generation. Like, it led to... It actually, it they claim it led to, in uh, in about 30 years' time... No, actually, literally 30 years after Robloy's death, Napoleon mm. invades, as a general of the French Republic, he invades Alexandria and and wow. and then goes from there. So... They think that the imperial designs were drawn up for Egypt, the French imperial designs, after because of Rob Roy's death. Wow. So Napoleon wanted revenge against his... Fe- so his fellow Frenchman, was he French? Do we know if he was actually French? Well, this is the curse of, of history, Patrick. We don't know. Oh, man. Uh, Rob Roy is a quite a common name in France, but it could also have been a cover name if he yeah. was Armenian. We it would have know. made sense to pick a very common French name. You wouldn't pick something rare, which you would think could link you back to a family that could say, "No, you're not a relative." Yeah, so they pick it. So it'd be like, it'd be like an, it'd be faking to be English and calling yourself Smith, 
or something. Exactly, exactly. So he might have. The alternative history of Roboloy is that he escapes somehow Armenian Ottoman, uh, the Armenian state of the Ottoman Empire, and made it to Alexandria, and then set up shop, and thought, oh, I can be French here. I kind I of like that story a bit more. I don't know why. I, I I like to think that he it was him, this master plan, and he managed to escape. Because I don't really know about Armenia um, during the Ottoman Empire. I imagine, as you said, they were considered second-class citizens. So he escaped and made an entire life for himself. That's quite a that's quite an interesting tale, and actually quite a heroic and extraordinary uh, attempt to get yourself out of this horrific situation. And unfortunately, yeah. it just caught. It just caught him. He was caught. It just up it either caught up with him, or he was the most unlucky Frenchman in the world. That's true. Or not. That's maybe. In the I mean, world, he was but, able know. to. What? Although, what's interesting is that the French considered him French. So even though he could have made up a French name, he was able to adopt a French accent, learn French, adopt a French accent, and be able to convince other Frenchmen that he is French, even though he yeah. grew up a million miles away in a completely different part of the world with a completely different set of culture like if he if it was if he was armenian that is a remarkable tale it is if it's french it's just unfortunate but if it's armenian then it's then that's a whole different thing it's personally i don't i mean i, I it's literally just from doing the research i tend to think he's french yeah because i don't know why they would go out their way so much if they thought there was even a whiff of him being armenian and you never know there could have been letters that are missing that talk about his where he was from in France. True, true. That's the thing. And evidence, what do they always say? They say that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And there's, you know, we don't know what was recovered or what was destroyed. I mean, it sounds like if someone really wanted to get rid of him, arguing that he's Arminian to the Ottoman Empire seems like the perfect cover story because it means that you're completely destroying someone's chance to to fight back because if he's almost he's almost like you know it's that kind of you know innocent and proven guilty but he was almost Armenian until um, and not he was Armenian first yeah <laughs> Armenian before proven proven French you know they considered him Armenian and treated him like a second class citizen which meant he couldn't fight for him like I assume he was given no ability to. Uh, fight himself. his corner really nope because he was None. immediately thrown onto a slave ship and taken away so if you wanted if you were someone in constantinople and wanted to get rid of him getting getting him to be convincingly uh uh assumed to be arminian is the perfect way of getting rid of him because it just immediately writes him off as his own person to be able to fight his fight his but this corner. is this is why i think he he's french in that it's such an I don't know why an Ottoman in Const- a, 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 a very important Ottoman in Constantinople would go out of his way to bring down an Armenian if he knew if he was Armenian they could have just mm. gone and well, you, there would have been Armenians living all over the place you know yeah so yeah. what you don't need to target a specific Armenian there's a hundred places they could have been do you sort of mean and mm. okay it was a tax thing but in my head this is a financial this is this is driven by finance. It's not to do actually with xenophobia. It's more mm. we want your business. You haven't paid us right. Not for the taxes. I mean, for you know, mm. you haven't greased the right wheels in Constantinople. We're jealous of how good you've got it, and we want yeah. your business. And Absolutely. so that's why I think personally. Now, just to finish, I just really have to um, cite my source. So, Maya Jasanoff uh, is the person who made the incredible uh, article called Cosmopolitan, A Tale of Identity from Ottoman Alexandria. 
uh, which came out in 2005, and you can get it on JSTOR. Now, that might seem like a place which um, it's spelled J-S-T-O-R dot uh, com. And if you sign up, you can actually register for free and get 100 articles a month for free. So if you're uh, that way inclined, I really think that's a good place for you guys to start. So Maya Jasanoff, uh, 2005. That's when it is. And I literally got the whole story from her. It was just brilliant yeah. reading it. Um, <laughs> that's perfect for us. Yeah. I mean, what a um, story, though. That is a yeah. proper... It, it feels almost... I. There's also an element of it, and, you know, this is just me overly reading into things, but it feels like he could have been, like, a spy, and it could have been involved in... Because he feels like that he would be a perfect agent, wouldn't he, really? He would. Uh, because he'd, he'd be immersed in this culture, and it seems like maybe he pissed off the wrong person. It's also such an interesting fact that you know, the steps he took to ingratiate himself into their society, you know, the way he dressed, the fact he could speak, actually probably did him a disservice in the end. Right. In the fact that, you know, he wasn't so clearly French. You know, if he yeah. was wandering around in tights and a, a tall wig and a curly moustache, I can think of any more <laughs> wow. French um, stereotypes, I'll, I'll list them. Um, or swinging garlic around on a... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I feel like, you know, tights and a, and, a, and a fancy wig, that was, I mean, that would make you very European at that time. Yeah. But because he decided, you know, he wanted to be this top man and be really effective at his job, he decided to throw all that aside, which made him brilliant as a, as a dragoman, but unable to really defend himself and prove himself to be French. Yeah, so exactly. It's it, it, that's so interesting. And, and yeah. I mean, what what I love about the story is it goes from as as sort of a local as Bedouin tribesman, all the way up yeah. to the French king, and then mm. you've got Constantinople sort of vice admiral who's come down to capture him. You've got uh, a Genoese wife, you know, it's and it's all happening in the confines of a a city which no longer had this sort of. The, the same power and eminence that it had in the time of your mm. your story, Patrick, and suddenly yeah. it's in the middle of the global stage again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it. That's that's fascinating. And the, yeah, the fact that despite uh, everything the Ottomans did to Alexandria, it can't help but be an important city for the world because of its location and because of its heritage. You know, this all happens in the shadow of this great city of of Cleopatra and, and Alexander the Great city. Um, and you still have these huge political incidents happening despite yeah. the Ottomans' attempt to, to, to ruin it, which exactly. is really nice. I yeah. think that's a really cool story. Well, yeah, thank you I very much. It. And thank you. Yeah. What was her name again? Uh, Maya Jasanoff. Maya Jasanoff. Well, thank you, Maya Jasanoff, because that, I really should thank you more. I mean, thanks, Will, as well, for telling it to me so well. Yeah, but... yeah no. <laughs> no, definitely. She gets all the credit for this. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. Uh, so that's the end of our, our two-parter on Alexandria. We are now going to be moving uh, in time and space uh, to a very different city. Uh, Patrick, where are we going next? We are going to London, to your old town, to... Oi, I was going to say Old Blighty, but that's just Britain, isn't it? Yeah. London the, Town. <laughs> London Town to the Big Smoke. It's the Big Smoke. That's what I think that's one yeah, of the names. Yeah, the Big Smoke. Yeah, yeah. The Big Smoke to, yeah, to, to, to the, what I think a lot of people consider to be one of the uh, centres of the world. Certainly people from London think that. <laughs> yeah. I think the rest of us, the, the rest of us are a bit more unsure. But a very interesting city that spans, you know, further than I think Alexandria. Uh, there was founded in. No, not further than that. No, no, no. It's 300 no. years younger. It's about 2,000 years old. It was founded in 69 BC. No, CE. 
Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah. oh yeah, because actually, yeah, it's it's Julius Caesar time, isn't it? It's it's founded. Mm. So, but still, pretty pretty hefty history. Yeah, but yeah, cool. That is what we'll be uh, looking into next week. So I know we've got a lot more um, British listeners. So if any of you guys are from London, hopefully we can teach you some interesting things about the city you dwell in. There'll be lots of new stuff. I've I've learned a lot from the research from that that I had never heard of. Yeah. So should be good. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, everyone. And uh, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Tell a mate. Absolutely. Let's tell, let's yeah, grow tell this. Anyone. Tell yeah. anyone. Tell tell your Genoese wife. Tell the the Ottoman who's arresting you. Tell tell whoever. You know these people want to hear. <laughs> they want to hear about history and they want to hear about Alexandria or New York or or London or if you want to go back in our back catalog about assassinations, we've got everything. Yeah. Well, by now, a... by the end of this series, we will have everything because I think these episodes are covering such a different range of stuff. It's not just yeah. killings, although still quite a few killings. Of course, of course. Anyway, thanks very much, guys, and see you next week.